AU Law Professor Richard Levy talking about West Virginia versus EPA on this week's Renew Guru. Hello out there in podcast world. This is Renew Gurus, your source for all things energy policy and politics in Missouri and beyond. I'm Executive Director of Renew Missouri, James Owen, coming to you live on tape from our palatial studios in North Columbia. I am also our producer today because Philip has got a uh, conflict, but as a special co-host, I have our St. Louis director slash counsel, Andrew Linares. Hey, Andrew, how are you? Hey, James. Great to be here. Zooming in from St. Louis. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I feel like this is like whenever Frank Sinatra would come on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. <laughs> like he just kind of comes in as like the marquee guest and uh, we don't have you on enough, Andrew. Uh, it's true. So thanks- it's, yeah. But we no, do have a special. Here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, we do have kind of a topic that you're interested in, and uh, it is really not involving renewables or efficiency or anything like that. But it is kind of involving a topic that is has been of interest to clean energy advocates and environmental advocates around the country. It is the decision that was uh, brought down by the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago uh, in the West Virginia versus EPA case. Uh, there's been a lot of questions about what that means, about what that will do moving forward. And so to kind of talk about that, I have, I have brought on someone who has meant a lot to me in my career as a lawyer, my old con law professor, my old legislation professor, my old, the, the director of my public policy clinic from KU Law. He also, um, he also supervised me doing a uh, paper on the Help America to Vote Act back in 2003 um, and gave me a very good grade for that. So I'm always appreciative to Professor Richard Levy. Professor Levy, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing all right. Um, uh, Like everyone, I've been watching recent Supreme Court decisions with great interest, including the West Virginia versus EPA decision. Um, And so I'm happy to be on and thank you for the invitation to talk about uh, this decision, which I think has really important implications, not only for climate change, uh, energy policy, but also more generally for the role of administrative agencies in U.S. government. Right. Yeah. So before and before we dive in that, can you kind of say a little bit about what your Give us a like five cent tour of your background, what your what what your you know what you teach, uh, where you where you've got your education, just a little bit about you. Sure. Um, well, I am a native Kansan, at least as close as you can be, uh, <laughs> having having lived in uh, Topeka since the time I was two weeks old, with with a brief stint out while my dad was in the Air Force. Um, okay. I, I'm a KU undergrad. I also have a master's degree in, of all things, uh, German literature, which is a story for another day. Um, <laughs> uh, it, but like many people with that sort of degree, uh, my fallback plan was to go to law school. Um, so I went to law school at the University of Chicago Law School. Oh, um, yeah. And after I graduated from the University of Chicago. I clerked for a federal court of appeals judge there, Judge Richard Posner. Um, who You've heard of him, and, haven't we, and, Andrew? Uh, yeah, he's pretty yeah, famous. Right. He, he's a pretty famous judge, and 
Um, that clerkship opened a lot of doors for me, including a door to be a member of the faculty at the KU Law School, yeah. uh, where I joined uh, the faculty in 1985. Uh, I've been here ever since. Wow. Uh, my uh, focus in teaching and research would be broadly defined to include what we might call public law, uh, that is the law involving how government intersects or regulates uh, the general population, the private sector, people. And that includes constitutional law, administrative law, statutes and legislation, and general public policy kinds of matters. Um, and I've taught and written in all of those areas. Um, maybe my biggest claim to fame and the qualification that would be most relevant to this podcast is that I'm co-author uh, of a, an administrative law textbook that's published by Foundation Press, which is now in its third edition. Um, and that my co-author and I will likely have to completely rewrite as a result of recent Supreme Court decisions. You are you are way too qualified to be on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, which is, I mean, which is, uh, which all of that is why I wanted to have you on here because when this case and you've referenced uh, West Virginia versus EPA came down, there was a lot of questions about what that meant. And I guess thinking about this from like <laughs> approaching it from a law school perspective, can, can we talk a little bit about what generally that case was about? What was the Supreme Court there being asked to decide? Okay, well, at, at, at bottom, it was a legal challenge to uh, the so-called clean air plan um, mm -hmm. that had been adopted by EPA under the Obama administration. Um, that plan had never gone into effect. Um, but the authority to adopt the plan was challenged. So the, the fundamental basis of the legal challenge was EPA had no authority to adopt the regulations uh, that it did under the statutory provisions that EPA relied on. And yeah. ultimately the critical issue is it's, it's clear that EPA has at least some authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions that had been established long ago. Uh, but the question was whether the particular provision that they relied on relating to power plants um, granted authority to EPA to require power plants to shift their method of generating elect electricity away from coal towards cleaner fossil fuels and away from fossil fuels towards renewable or you know, non-carbon generating kinds of uh, sources. And ultimately the court held that they did not have that authority. So they could require plants to be cleaner but they can't require them to shift their method of generation in order to be cleaner. And this, this is an issue that has never been in front of the court in this way, but it, it's something that the Clean Air Act and Section 111 and, and all this stuff has been an issue in front of the court for the past couple decades. Uh, the Clean Air Act obviously is you know passed back in the Nixon era 
and then there was the, the 1990 amendments and whatnot. And actually, the, the, there was a decision in 2007 that James and I were talking about is, I guess, kind of part of my humble origin story. I, I was uh, an English student, uh, literature student, much like yourself. And in 2007, I was living in Europe, uh, studying abroad and studying uh, German literature, actually. <laughs> Uh, really? Enough. Sehr gut. Didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> not not in the German, of course, but uh, I, I was living. I, I was studying abroad, and and the decision, the Massachusetts decision, uh, decision came down uh-huh. in two thousand seven, and it was really one of the big reasons why I decided to go to law school and and study environmental law. And I I read uh, Justice Stevens' opinion before I knew what a Supreme Court opinion was, and uh, I really kind of got my inspiration to go to law school because of that. And, and that, that all came from a decision under the Clean Air Act about whether uh, a finding, it hinged on whether carbon dioxide could be considered a pollutant uh, under the act. And I'm wondering if you could just talk us through that and how this, this, this new decision, the West Virginia decision, shows the shift in the way the court is approaching the regulation of carbon by the executive branch. Well, uh, I don't know that you could say that there's a direct shift. So the issue in Massachusetts versus EPA concerned uh, what substances qualify for regulation because they pollute the ambient air. And uh, Massachusetts versus EPA uh, considered whether carbon dioxide was a chemical substance that qualified as a pollutant because it would have harmful effects on um, uh, on public health. And the language of the statute, both its definition of uh, what constituted a pollutant and its definition of what constituted a harm or threat to public health were sufficiently clear that uh, carbon dioxide qualified. And the court rejected the argument that, well, it's not a pollutant because carbon dioxide exists naturally in the air. That didn't take it outside of the scope of what would be a pollutant. Um, So once you determine that it's a pollutant, then EPA was obligated to make a, a finding about whether or not it was harmful to public health. And if it was harmful to public health, then EPA was obligated to regulate it. And um, the court didn't answer those questions, sent it back down to the lower courts for resolution of those questions. But ultimately, uh, that case stands for the proposition that EPA has authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Right. Uh, now right. there's nothing there's nothing in West Virginia versus EPA that uh, overturns or alters that conclusion. Um, instead, uh, the West Virginia case is focused on uh, what authority EPA has to regulate those emissions, and, and so it still has the authority. The question is. Does that authority include the authority to require power plants to shift their mechanism of generating um, uh, 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 electricity? Right. And um, 
it, it, it wouldn't matter what the pollutant is. The answer in West Virginia versus EPA would be the same. So you couldn't require generation shifting to reduce sulfur dioxide or uh, mm -hmm. other kinds of pollutants. Um, you would still be required to essentially work on the technology for the particular plants generation uh, system or mechanism to make it cleaner, you couldn't require them to change over to um, uh, to a different uh, uh, source altogether. Uh, right. That's okay. So that that's a useful distinction. So, you know, back in 2007, we had this finding that the EPA could indeed regulate carbon as a pollutant, uh -huh. and uh, it, for for those advocates out there, uh, you know, fast forward a couple years. Uh, 2014, uh, everyone was talking about 111D, Section 111D, and that became the Clean Power Plan oh, in 2015, uh, which was the subject of a lot of advocacy and rulemaking. And then, uh -huh. of course, we had the election in 2016, and it took a couple of years, but they halted the Clean Power Plan in its tracks uh, in the whole scheme that EPA mm -hmm. had put together to require states to take action on stationary source in, on power plants essentially uh -huh. and that clean power plan process was never concluded never went into effect but the supreme court still had the authority and the prerogative here to uh continue to discuss that question can you talk about that like why was this even at issue if the clean power plan never went into effect well that's that's a good question um there is a doctrine related to the jurisdiction of federal courts known as the mootness doctrine. So normally uh, when a, uh, a legal issue is no longer live because particularly because the government has withdrawn or changed the law in ways that make the issue go away, a, a court will usually dismiss that as moot. Um, nonetheless, there's an exception for mootness uh, doc or from mootness doctrine when uh, an issue is, they say, capable of repetition um, and a matter of great public interest. So they may go ahead and take it. So the, the court uh, essentially was in a position to decide we need to resolve the question of EPA's authority because this issue is likely to come up again. Um, EPA is likely to rely on 111D again for a similar kind of um, plan. So we're going to resolve that question now. That's, that's pretty much within the court's discretion, like a lot of uh, decisions that the court makes. Um, and uh, it, it, uh, you know, the, the majority of justices wanted to resolve the issue. So they did. Right. And so now we're, you know, hopefully our listeners are hanging uh, in there with us through this, this, uh, all this legal jargon, but what does this mean now in a larger sense? I mean, we, uh, this, this case comes down in the midst of a, a raft of, you know, uh, Supreme Court decisions that are really changing the way the, the court and the federal government approaches big issues, you know, obviously the, the abortion decision and the regulation of 
uh, carbon dioxide here. So what, what do you think this signals in terms of like the larger approach of the court and, uh, and the, the federal Congress and where, where does this fit into all of that? Oh, oh that, that's a big question that I, we probably need to break down yeah. into a lot <laughs> yeah. of different areas. So um, I'm going to focus on an, uh, an aspect of constitutional law that's known as the, the separation of powers and uh, approach it from that direction. I'll leave issues of fundamental constitutional rights like the right to abortion for a, another day. But I will say that there's a connection in the sense that all of them are um, all of the court's decisions align with uh, a very conservative political agenda, um, which is not surprising considering the efforts to appoint conservative justices in recent years. Um, so once we have a clear, really a supermajority, six very conservative justices, um, even if one of those justices may choose not to go along, there's a, a, a majority of conservatives that are willing to pursue what appears to be a very conservative agenda. Um, and, you know, contrary to what I said, we can look at things like uh, religious freedom and free exercise cases that have minimized the role of the Establishment Clause and promoted um, uh, the uh, freedom to, of, of particularly Christians to uh, exercise their religion uh, and enact their religion as a matter of, of public policy. Um, we have abortion rights decisions, but we also have decision, gun rights decisions would be, decision would be another one. Uh, but we also have uh, one more case in a series of decisions that have reinvigorated separation of powers doctrines in ways that sharply constrain the ability of administrative agencies to act in the public interest. Um, and that really all goes back all, you know, about 80 to 90 years to the New Deal period. I don't know whether your viewers uh, and listeners are interested in a history lesson, but until, <laughs> uh, until, about, until about 1937, from about 1890 to 1937, the Supreme Court uh, was very anti-regulation. They struck down many laws that were designed to create rights for workers, to protect the worker health and safety or the general public. Um, they relied on various doctrines to do so. Sometimes they relied on what was called substantive due process, to protect freedom of contract and strike down things like minimum wage laws because they violated freedom of contract. Sometimes they relied on federalism and struck down federal programs because they interfered with reserved state police powers, um, like the application of antitrust laws to manufacturing of sugar or steel. Um, uh, and sometimes they relied on 
separation of powers to hold that administrative agencies had been given too much authority and that that authority was incompatible with the vesting of legislative power in Congress. Um, and the idea was that only Congress could make important public policy decisions. In about 1937, at the height of the Great Depression and after Franklin Roosevelt won landslide re-election, partly campaigning against the court, um, uh, one justice changed his vote from anti-regulation to pro-regulation. Um, that justice coincidentally was named Roberts. Um, and um, the, the change in, in vote um, pretty much undercut uh, what uh, President Roosevelt's court packing plan, which was to uh, design to expand the court um, so that he could appoint up to six new justices and change its direction. Um, if that sounds vaguely familiar, um, we're, I mean, there's a kind of echo of history going on here to a certain extent. Um, in any case, I, I mentioned that because the switch or the change in votes by Justice Roberts is sometimes referred to as the switch in time that saved nine um, as a play on the traditional um, proverb. Um, in any case, after that, the court relaxed all of its restrictions on government regulation and generally endorsed the idea that Congress and the agencies had broad authority to protect uh, the public, uh, to regulate business, industry, private property in ways that were designed to uh, further the public interest, uh, pursuant to broad general delegations of authority. Um, so uh, the West Virginia case um, represents a sharp departure um, from that kind of perspective. Um, and the way that it does that is through the adoption of what's known as the major questions doctrine, um, yeah. which was something that was actually uh, never called that in a Supreme Court case until West Virginia, um, but had been uh, coined in some ways by then Judge Kavanaugh when he was on the District of Columbia uh, Court of Appeals. Um, and there are echoes of it in some other recent decisions, but it emerged full bore as a significant limit on agency power in West Virginia. Under the, under the major questions doctrine as adopted in West Virginia, when an agency claims power to make a major policy decision, um, it has to point to basically explicit statutory authority to do that. Broad general language in the statute is not enough. Um, and the court explained that major questions of policy should be adopted by Congress. Um, and the, the sort of assertion of that sort of authority by agencies was contrary to the separation of powers and the, the, the scheme of government in which um, Congress, the lawmaker, is representative in character. So um, uh, under the major questions doctrine, the court 
will uh, essentially read statutes narrowly to prevent agencies from resolving major uh, policy questions. Um, the court didn't give us a lot of clues as to what makes a question a major question. There was a concurring opinion where Justice Gorsuch said, well, anything an agency does that has significant um, uh, policy or political, excuse me, uh, political, economic, or federalism implications would make it a major question, which seems to be almost anything that an agency might want to do. So it, 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 the major question doctrine would appear to operate as an all-purpose mechanism to restrict agency power. That's that's fascinating uh, because you know I, I I wasn't looking at this case in terms of that level of historical significance, but you know we we this this implicates the the amount of deference that the court has historically uh, brought to agency decisions. Uh, you know it, uh, it it's you, it's it's also although it purports to be deferential to Congress. It's actually not deferential to Congress. It reduces deference to Congress because it basically says, Congress, you can't give broad authority. Um, you've right. got to go through and give specific authority for everything you want agencies to be able to do, which makes it much more difficult for Congress to act. Yeah, because I, I was thinking, like, as you were talking, like, what if, I mean, what if, like, that presupposes that Congress doesn't want to be broad? with what they give to a, to a- Right, and what the, court is, what the court is essentially saying is Congress can't be broad. If Congress is broad, <laughs> that violates separation of powers. Congress has to do it itself. It can't delegate that to, to an agency. Um, and even, so, so, you know, the language of the statute 111D easily covers and encompasses what the agency did. Um, because it authorizes the agency to, what is it, prescribe systems for reduction of, uh, of emissions. And, you know, generation shifting is a system for, uh, you know, re reducing emissions. Uh, so it fits within the statutory language easily. But the court said that's not enough. It's got to be specifically authorized. If it's that important, Congress has to say, yes, you can shift um, production of, of, of electricity from one me method to another. And because it didn't explicitly do that, the agency, Congress didn't explicitly say that the agency can't do it. And this, this all comes at a time when uh, the, the, the legislature, the, the Congress has uh, seen sort of historic deadlock. I mean, really since the New Deal, you could say that we've seen a decline in the effectiveness of the, of the Congress uh, and, uh, you know, the, I think the, it's it's, the, it's the probably rule. it's yeah. probably more since the 80s and 90s. Um, so there, you know, the filibuster has changed over time. Uh, it used to be you actually had to hold the floor. Now you don't. <laughs> yeah, um, right. You know, it it used to be that you would actually force a vote on all of these things, but. But now you just say, oh, I'm going to filibuster and everybody goes home and and and, and packs their bags. So um, the filibuster, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a, a signal of dysfunction or, or a cause of some dysfunction. And absolutely, 
Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, the court has required Congress to be explicit at a time when Congress could not possibly be explicit um, or right. correct a misinterpretation of, uh, of the court. Um, it's not probably not a coincidence that the court is hamstringing agencies when they are the only functional part of the federal government in terms of responding to uh, uh, you know crises or, or problems. Um, uh, it, just to, to sort of put it into context, you probably heard that the court invalidated uh, OSHA regulations requiring uh, large employers to uh, uh, require vaccination of employees. Right. That relied on the major question doctrine or its equivalent as well, because the language would e of the statute would have easily encompass that, but the court said, well, we don't think Congress meant to allow regulation that goes beyond in the, the workplace in this way. It's a, a major question. Now, that was one that was, uh, you know, also very limiting on OSHA's authority. They also narrowly construed the Center for Disease Control's authority in striking down a moratorium on evictions for, for similar sorts of, of reasons. Yeah. Uh, so this is, this is a, broader, uh, a broader kind of opposition. Uh, another area where they've been active, less directly relevant to this podcast, is uh, casting down on so-called independent agencies uh, and uh, sort of indicating that protections in civil service and other laws uh, that limit firing of executive officials um, to good cause uh, are constitutionally suspect because they interfere with the president's authority over the executive branch. Yeah, it's, it's, and it, there, there's this tension here. I mean, to bring it back around to the Clean Air Act and what we can do to respond to, you know, perhaps the biggest global challenge out there, there's this tension between, you know, the, the major questions doctrine or, or doing this, requiring this tight textual reading of statutes and doing what's practically needed to manage a global challenge, which, as you said, you know, our executive agencies are probably the only functional part of the federal government that are capable of, of you know, regulating the, the largest economy on earth and regulating the, the fuels that are backing the global economy. I mean, it's a huge challenge. And uh, absolutely. At a, when, at a time when Congress doesn't seem to have its act together, uh, how well, else do we tackle this if not in big federal agencies? Yeah, sort of going to the broad scheme of things, I think one theme that, um, that, that unites many of the court's most controversial decisions from this last term is the uh, justices seem completely unconcerned with the actual consequences in the real world of their decisions. They're not concerned about gun violence. Um, they're only concerned about the historical meaning uh, of uh, the Second Amendment. They're, they're not concerned about the practical impact of uh, allowing Christians to basically express their religion um, 
in from positions of power in the public sphere. Um, and they're, they're uh, not concerned with the real consequences of abortion regulations for women. Um, and they're uh, clearly not concerned about global climate change either. So none of these consequences ha had any impact. They're uh, focused on a kind of um, uh, what uh, one scholar has referred to as uh, airy formalism, um, right? So they're 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 focused on articulating principles that they're going to follow, regardless of where those principles lead in the in the real world. Right. Yeah, because and that kind of brings back because you're talking about the major questions issue. Because I mean, a lot of these uh, uh, Supreme Court justices who have who signed on to this decision, the West Virginia versus EPA, are very much about you know, the original intent of the founders and the original uh -huh. intent of the people who wrote these amendments. I mean, how does that reconcile? I mean, like, does, I mean, is there, I mean, is there a rationale for that in this decision about how a major questions like goes to article two? Uh, no, well, it article goes one, it's article one. Yeah. Right. So th there's very definitely uh, an originalist cast uh, to uh, the decision based on a kind of assumption that, um, under the original separation of powers principles as understood in 1789, there would be a sharp uh, differentiation between legislative power, executive power, and uh, judicial power, where uh, overlapping powers would not be acceptable. Um, and the assumption is that the you know at the time of the founding congress would not delegate these kinds of powers to administrative officials and that's the line that's that that they're they're sort of drawing um the problem is first of all there's a lot of evidence that that's historically inaccurate that is early statutes did in fact delegate lots of authority under open-ended standards to executive branch officials. Um, so, and, and, and part of the problem with originalism is that it purports to be neutral and provide a, a sort of clear external sources for what the court does. When anybody who studied history knows that it's contested and always contested and there's no clarity to, to history. Um, and uh, in fact, relying on history uh, opens the door to a kind of cherry picking process where you find the historical sources that support your position to be persuasive and you minimize or ignore the historical information that's incompatible with, uh, with what you've done. Um, and that's been true in a lot of the originalist decisions or nominally originalist decisions. Dobbs cherry-picked history. The Second Amendment case cherry-picked history. Um, and the religious freedom cases also tend to cherry-pick history. So I've always felt like originalism claims to be neutral, but it's really not. And that history is a lot like a Rorschach test in which you see in history that which you've brought um, uh, to, to the table rather than uh, uh, objectively uh, uh, assessing it. Um, it's also, 
I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I'll, I'll be right up front. I think originalism is deeply flawed. Another flaw I find in originalism is that in 1789 or, or even the 1860s when the Civil War amendments were adopted, um, the franchise was very limited. Uh, only, only propertied white men participated in drafting and approving the original constitution. Women, slaves, Native Americans had, had no say. Um, so one of the claims of originalism is that, well, we gain legitimacy because we're relying on the text of the constitution as originally adopted. But it's hard to see how that original adoption confers a lot of legitimacy when so many swaths of our population were not represented. More broadly, nobody alive today participated in the approval of the Constitution. So right. um, it, to the extent it's legitimate, it's because we now recognize it as legitimate as members of our, uh, of modern society. Right. And in that respect, we recommend it as legit. We recognize it as legitimate, not because of what it said and meant in 1789, but, but because of what it says it means today. Um, so I don't see originalism as uh, supporting any kind of legitimacy uh, on the part of the court's decisions. Uh, in fact, it renders them, in my view, less legitimate because it ignores uh, all of the uh, sort of precedents and um, developments since 1789 that have made the Constitution more just. Right. And, and yeah, I, I mean, that's a really profound insight uh, about the structure of our government and, and our court system and everything. And I'm wondering at the end here, uh, as we wrap up, I'm wondering if there's a way for us to see some light amidst this doom and gloom. And, you know, we're, we're at the state level. We're state advocates. Many people who listen to this are at that level. And yep. we to some extent, the clean power plan, we all know was by no means a cure-all for climate change. I mean, I remember looking at a lot of the analysis for the Clean Power Plan, and many states were already on the path to compliance, and uh -huh. the, the reductions were, to some extent, already baked in just because of the way the American economy was going. And you could say that to really tackle climate change, we were always going to need congressional action and international action and a larger movement that went beyond what EPA was proposing. So I'm just wondering what, how would you say this decision affects the state of play for state advocates and their work? And, and what, what is the next thing for them to focus on going forward? Well, uh, you know, the old saying, you have to be careful what you wish for. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I came of age in the 70s. Um, when liberal slash progressive politics dominated um, the conversation and uh, abortion rights were being recognized and, and applied strongly when government regulation was accepted as a good thing broadly by uh, large swaths of the population. Um, and... Uh, even as that was happening, the uh, beginnings of backlash uh, against it 
were right. underway. Um, and, you know, it wasn't that long after that that we had Reagan and the emergence of uh, a, a strong conservative movement that has built momentum over time and essentially routed the forces of liberalism and progressivism, changing the conversation at a pretty fundamental level. Um, and uh, I, I, I believe that we may be approaching a similar kind of moment where conservatism has um, uh, achieved so many of its goals um, and in the process laid bare what that really looks like. And in so doing, they may have generated or laid the foundations for a strong backlash going the other way. Um, so, you know, if you're looking for a ray of optimism, I would say these kinds of actions may focus attention and generate the kind of grassroots activism that would be necessary to change political momentum and change the political conversation over time. Now, I don't think it'll happen right away. It's, it's a, it's a long-term kind of process, but um, the last time the Supreme Court was this way, it eventually gave us Roosevelt and a liberal court um, uh, by way of, uh, of backlash. Um, and, uh, you know, re political response. So it's entirely possible that uh, even as the Republican Party and particularly the most conservative elements of the Republican Party see victory on multiple fronts, uh, that that could produce the kind of political response uh, long term that would lead to more fundamental change. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly know that some people, when they get success, they tend to become apathetic, too. And so in addition to, like, kind of mobilizing people who have seen, uh, who have who don't like what they've seen, who have disagreed with this, and this mobilizes them, sometimes when you've reached, I mean, I, you know, there are people who have been working on this issue for 40, 50 years. Um, yeah. They've reached it. They, right. Yeah. So I, 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 I definitely feel like uh, all you have to do uh, again, I hate to come back to Dobbs and Roe, but um, Roe and Casey gave a false sense of security to supporters of choice um, that they didn't have to worry about change, you know, the political dimension of abortion rights because they had a constitutional safeguard. And um, so they 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 didn't vote. Uh, on abortion as a single issue anymore. Um, they were focused on a variety of different issues and not really energized around that, that sort of questions. Conversely, Roe galvanized a strong uh, movement against abortion rights and related uh, sort of religious, um, uh, 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 the religious right generally um, and, 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 and social issues surrounding that. Uh, th that was galvanized. And, um, you know, we may start to see the reverse be true as um, uh, anti-abortion forces and, and people on the right have succeeded, um, then they may become more complacent and uh, opponents may become more active. The same could be true of uh, regulation and, and the forces against regulation. So, 
um, you know, almost as soon as the ink was dry on the switch that in time that saved nine, um, businesses and other opponents of regulation have been working for the day when they could uh, severely restrict regulatory authority. And, um, you know, that started in earnest under under President Reagan, but it's um, accelerated and now they are, are at the point where they have largely succeeded in that. They may become more complacent and uh, proponents of uh, necessary regulation more energized in the process. Wow, this has been really helpful and really illuminating to me. And I just want to thank you, Professor Levy. Um, uh, that was great. <laughs> okay. Well, are we done uh, with the actual podcast at this point? Oh, I haven't. I haven't signed us off yet. But is there okay. anything? Is there anything like on the? I guess I would finalize my question with: Is there anything like on the horizon that you know? I mean, the the term for the Supreme Court is done, but they will come back in the fall. Is that right? They will have cases yes. Fall. Uh, I I think the uh, the biggest case on the docket so far in the fall. Um, is a case that is um, raising what's called the independent state legislature theory. Um, and, and then that could have some pretty profound implications. So for those that aren't familiar with it, um, the constitution in article one gives state legislatures the authority to make rules for not only state elections, or actually doesn't confer that, but uh, they would have authority to make rules for federal elections, including things like districting for uh, Congress and also things like mail ballots and when, when voting is permitted. Those kinds of rules are actually adopted by state legislatures. Mm. Um, Although Congress can override those rules and make its own, um, if it doesn't, state legislatures set those rules. Now, because the language of the Constitution refers specifically to state legislatures, some people have argued that means only state legislatures can make those decisions, um, which would then mean um, neither election officials nor state courts could uh, look at or revise or alter those rules in any way. So in particular, um, they might prevent a state court from deciding that rules violate the state constitution um, and, uh, or even the federal constitution because only the state legislature can decide them. That's a very extreme position and um, it would potentially authorize, for example, a state legislature to come in and say, you know, we don't like the results of the popular election for president. Um, so we're going to uh, throw out the vote and uh, make our own appointment of electors um, as an example. And nobody can look over our shoulder in doing that because of the independent state legislature theory. Now, uh, in the past, there have been no takers for that theory um, on the Supreme Court. 
but the fact that the court has granted review in a case presenting that theory, and at least some of the justices, conservative justices, have signaled some sympathy for it, uh, it's possible that they could decide that that's the correct reading of the constitutional text, uh, which would cause a lot of havoc in state elections or elections generally. Wow. Well, everyone sleep well knowing that. <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 it does cause one to toss and turn, particularly uh, juxtaposed against the hearings on the January, yeah. of the January 6th committee. Um, it's a very precarious time in history. Um, I, th and... I think that's right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it is time if, if people have been sort of, um, what's the right word? Uh, too busy to be paying attention right. to what's going on. And as a lot of people are, we've all got stuff going on in our lives and yeah. paying attention to this stuff is hard. It's hard yeah. to generate the energy and enthusiasm. It's hard to believe that your involvement would make a difference. But if people are, you know, sitting these kinds of issues out because they've feel impotent or like it doesn't affect them right. it's time to start paying attention and get involved couldn't have said it better myself thanks again Professor Levy. uh and thank you all for listening we hope you like this podcast if you did subscribe to it on all major platforms leave a review share it on your social media platform i do believe this is a podcast that will generate a lot of interest beyond uh the 15 or 20 people <laughs> <laughs> who may listen to this None of which include any of my relatives. Uh, on behalf of <laughs> Renew Missouri <laughs> and on behalf of, 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 of all of us on here, thank you again for listening. And until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Bye.